Good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to Asochatiene Iroko series of conversations about prostitution. My name is Esohaya Gatise, and I'm the executive director of Iroko, and I'm thrilled to be hosting this evening's event. Iroko is a multinational, multicultural NGO uh, that provides services to victims of sex trafficking and of domestic violence, as well as assistance to migrants generally. Our services include um, uh, free legal and psychological support, cultural mediation, employment and housing search, and temporary economic assistance programs, to name a few. Iroko also carries out research and advocacy and is a member of several international coalitions, such as the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women, Coalition for the Abolition of Prostitution, the European Network of Migrant Women, and Brussels Call, to name a few. Iroko has won several awards, the last of which is the Child 10 Queen Sylvia of Sweden Award 2021. Iroko has also created a film entitled Journey of No Return, which is widely distributed in Nigeria and elsewhere as an educated and, and an awareness-raising instrument. It is important to note that Iroko is an abolitionist organization uh, which advocates for the abolition of prostitution and for the introduction of the abolitionist law worldwide. As one of the very first organizations to introduce the idea of abolitionist principles in Italy, Iroko decided to carry out this series of webinars to educate people more about abolitionism. This is the fifth in a series of seven meetings and we will be having, that we've been having really between May and July this year, every Thursday. So now I will go to our two powerful women, two speakers today, Rachel Moran and Melissa Farley. Rachel is the founding member of Space International and author of the best-selling book, Paid For, My Journey Through Prostitution, regarded by legal scholar Catherine Mackinnon as the best work by anyone on prostitution ever. We're very happy to say that the book has also been translated into Italian, uh, among many other languages, of course, by our sisters at Resistenza Feminista under the title Stupro Appagamento, Rachel was prostituted for seven years in Dublin and across Ireland from the age of 15. She later completed her education and received a degree in journalism from Dublin City University and a master's in creative writing from University College Dublin. She first addressed a crowd in 2011, which gathered at the launch of the Turn of the Red Light campaign, urging Ireland to adopt the Nordic model and was instrumental in the campaign's success. Together, they brought the abolitionist model to Ireland in two separate processes on either side of the Irish border. Rachel continues to work centrally within the International Survivors Movement, which calls for the implementation of the abolitionist model worldwide and has included many visits to Italy over the years to support our own abolitionist efforts. So thank you, Rachel. Melissa, Melissa Farley has written 40 peer-reviewed articles on prostitution and trafficking and two books, Prostitution, Trafficking and Traumatic Stress, 20, 2004, and Prostitution and Trafficking in Nevada, Making the Connections, 2007. 
25 years ago, she founded Prostitution Research and Education, an abolitionist NGO, which addresses the connections between the sex trade on the one hand and racism, sexism, and poverty. The Prostitution Research and Education website provides information about trafficking, pornography, and prostitution, including a survivor's blog, a list of agencies offering services to women who have been in prostitution, and news about research and anti-trafficking policy. Dr. Fali has practiced as a clinical psychologist for 50 years, and she brings that experience to her consultations with agencies, governments, and advocates for prostituted and trafficked women. She has articulated the harms of prostitution, pornography, and trafficking as an expert witness in forensic evaluations and is a legal expert on the effects of sexual violence against women and children, post-traumatic stress disorder, dissociation, prostitution, and trafficking. Thank you so much, Melissa, for joining us today. And um, we couldn't be more thrilled to have both of you with us this evening. So now I'm going to ask both of you um, the same kind of question. You have a few minutes to just um, give us that background. And um, I'll ask Rachel first. So Rachel, can you tell us a bit about your background, a bit more, you know, expand on that introductory part and the work that you do? Thanks so much, Asoe, for the introduction. And, um, and I love listening to your lovely soothing accent. It always relaxes me. <laughs> Um, so a little bit more about my history. Um, I suppose the last 10 years have been extremely turbulent in many ways. Um, I first spoke, as you said, in 2011. It, it was in February of 2011, actually. So more than a decade now. And it's been an incredible 10 years um, just traveling very relentlessly all around the earth um, and seeing so much in so many places. And it's peculiar to say, in some respects, I've learned a very great deal in this last decade. And in other respects, I haven't learned anything that I didn't know already, because everything I've seen everywhere I've gone has just been a model of what I saw here in Ireland already. Um, the, the, the difference was that in Ireland of the 1990s, the girls who were abused in prostitution um, were all working class girls, particularly from disadvantaged backgrounds that had multiples of different forms of, of um, family dysfunction in addition to their social disadvantage. And traveling around the world, I have seen that play out in terms of race in America, in terms of caste in India and so on and so forth. But it seems to me as a way that it's very much the same script with different national dynamics. Yeah. Yes, that is so true. So um, I'll ask Melissa, um, please, if you can tell us a bit about your background too and the work you do now. Sure, thank you so much. I'm, um, I'm honored to be here with Rachel and honored to be invited by USOE and Iroko to speak, thank you. I, I was a practicing psychologist for 40 years and I was doing my little community practice in San Francisco and I got a phone call one day 
and someone said to me on the other end of the phone, there's this woman who's being kicked off the San Francisco task force on prostitution. We know you work with violence against women, emotional fallout in your therapy practice. Um, would you be willing to write a letter along with a bunch of other people in the community saying you object to her being kicked off? And I was very confused. Why would a task force on prostitution try to eject a woman who had been through prostitution and was educating them on it? Now, so I got, I wrote the letter. They ignored my letter. They ignored the survivor, Norma Hotelling, also in San Francisco. They ignored her, they kicked her off. Norma and I met up and we got mad. And as everyone listening to this knows about, when women get angry about social injustice, watch out. Yeah. And yeah. Norma went on to found an agency, uh, one of the, you know, in the, in the, I think it was the late night, in the mid nineties, uh, led by survivors for exiting survivors in San Francisco. I went on to form prostitution research and education. I think my point here is that I did not get into this field because, and I remember saying on the phone, well, I'll write the letter, but I don't know anything about prostitution. And I got into this with what has turned into an abolitionist movement. I got into it from a political struggle as a community activist. I did not get into it as a psychologist um, from the first place. I, I hope I've been able to use my skills as a psychologist to advance what we're after in terms of abolishing the sex trade. But that's how I got into it. And as we speak today, the very same thing is happening in many parts of the world. Voices of survivor activists are being silenced. So I, I, I hear what Rachel's saying. It's, uh, it's, it's history repeating itself and the need for all of us, survivors, allies, politicians to come together and um, focus on the very, very basic human rights of women who, as, as Rachel and I, as I think, which is, do women have the right not to prostitute? Or are we gonna push them into that because um, it makes it easier for governments. Thank you so much for that, Melissa. You know what, just listening to you, it, it crossed my mind that there is this huge, huge body of the pro, those who want us to believe that prostitution is a job like any other job. And they are powerful because they have money, but survivors are even more powerful because they speak from a position of knowledge that they cannot deny. So knowing that it's a difficult and uphill task, yes, but the tide is very slowly turning against them. 
they want to shut us down and we're not going to let that happen. We're not going to let that happen and we'll continue to fight them. So I'm really happy that two of you are here today so we can talk more about this and also let people know the reality because unhappily, most people don't know. When they get to know, they get as mad as we are and they want something to be done. So that's why it's so important to be able to speak about these things now. We have this series of questions, as you know. So the next one I would like to ask both of you is that um, we title this evening as the role of the buyer. Hmm? And we'd like to start by asking you both what language you think is most appropriate and accurate to describe men who pay for prostitution. And what do you think is behind the often preferred language like client? I, I guess what I would say is client normalizes the purchase of a human being for sexual exploitation or prostitution or porn. It completely normalizes it. We call people who go to get their nails done clients. We call people who go for psychological counseling clients. And to call men who buy a human being for sexual use clients, I don't think it's a good idea. We need to know more about how they think. And uh, that more than even the words we call them, I think quoting them, for example, their incredible dehumanization and contempt for women in prostitution, we really need to highlight that. I once interviewed a sex buyer who said, prostitution is renting an organ for 10 minutes. That says it all. How, how can you call that person a client? It's just, it's it's too respectful. Yeah, I guess um, I, I'll stop there. Hmm. Well, would it also be right to say that they actually don't have any respect for women in general, not yes. just women in prostitution? Wow, Rachel, do you want to say something to that? Oh yeah, um, you know. The, the most recent um, translation of my book that went out was the Korean edition. Um, and I didn't make it to my own book launch because along came COVID-19. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> by the time, there was about um, seven years in the difference between the original in English and the Korean version. And you do a lot of moving on and evolving, or ought to do, I would say, <laughs> over the mm -hmm. seven years. So when it came time for that edition to go out, I just really felt that I needed to write a new forward. I wanted to write a new forward for the book and um, just speaking directly to Korean readers. And one of the things I said to them was that um, I identified several pieces of terminology that I'd used that I would advise them to ignore whether they found it in that book or anywhere else. And client was one of those terms. If I were to go back now and edit that book again, there's there's several terms that would be gone over, and client is definitely one of them. And I regret that, but you know, you 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 know, we all make our mistakes. Um, but Melissa's absolutely right. I, I agree with her completely and for all the reasons she's identified. And I do believe that when we use the term client at best, we're making a um a harmful mistake. 
Yeah, and and you know, it, it's it's really a process of learning for all of us because a lot of the language we use is what we inherited from the mainstream that has already been there. So sometimes we use it and then we realize, oh, this when you go behind the meaning, you understand it better and you change it. So it's a good thing that we're able to do that. And that happens. So who can we say are the sex buyers? Well, if I can just jump back for a moment to Zoe to mm. make the point that the term client is very rarely used amongst the women themselves. And I think that's very telling. Um, yeah. Whether be they here in Ireland or anywhere else in the world, they have their own local lingo um, for the way that they refer to the men. Uh, here we mm. say punter. In America, they say John. I know in Sweden, they say cod. And there's all sorts of different language. But women themselves rarely refer to men as if they were popping into the butcher shop to buy a half a pound of sausages. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> One, can I tell you one of my favorite expressions? Yeah. In, uh, in Johannesburg, South Africa, the women call the, the sex buyers steamers. Now I'm from the US and we call, there's a certain kind of uh, shellfish clams that are called steamers because they're steamed. And I wondered, I thought, Oh, I don't, I really don't understand this. What are they talking about? Do you know what they were referring to? Here's what it was. I, they finally explained the whole thing to me. There was a period of time when the Dutch white colonists would drive from their plantations into town in their cars with the windows up and, the, and they would huff and puff when they saw the women and the windows of their car would steam up. So the women called them steamers. It, it's just hilarious to me. I've always loved that one. Well, women are always very, very, they, they are inventive when it comes to innovative, when it comes to, you know, giving names. Terminology. These and, yes. and that's really, yeah, that's really important. So um, like I was saying, the next question was that of wanting to know who are the sex buyers and how would you define their role in the system of prostitution? They, they drive the sex trade. If they weren't there, it wouldn't exist. Uh, so they're essential. And they're also the most invisible part of the sex trade. You know, we were talking earlier about advocates and promote proponents of normalizing prostitution as sex work. Mm -hmm. Well, have you noticed, um, and I'm asking everybody on this uh, webinar, have you noticed that they don't bring up quotes from men who pay for sex. They don't talk about them. They talk about themselves, women who are paid for, and they talk about pimps or business managers, as they call them. They don't even mention sex buyers. And I think that's important for us to understand. One of the reasons for that is because when we start quoting these men, people cringe and they're appalled and they're revolted at how these men are treating human beings. 
here's, you know, here's, here's what in the course of our research, here's what another guy said. Uh, prostitution is where men have the freedom to do anything they want in a consequence-free environment. That's wow. the truth. We've interviewed men who buy sex now in seven different countries. And this attitude of entitlement, once the money hides the abuse, and that's how these guys think, they pay the money, that's it, anything Impunitive. It, it's what, again? So An impunity. Yes, they think it offers them impunity for what in any other context is a gross violation of a woman's human rights. But in prostitution, sexual harassment, rape, assault, poisonous verbal abuse are the order of the day. So that's, I guess that's the first thing I would say about it. And I know I know both Rachel and I have a lot more to say, so let me stop here and uh, pass yeah. it on. In terms of who they are, um, you, you, could, you could look at that from a whole different range of angles. Um, I think it's important to talk about demographics because hmm. they are always, in all circumstances, just like I spoke earlier on about women always being there in the main, in terms of the population from positions of marginalization and disadvantage, multi-layered. On the other side of that coin, the men who are purchasing access to women's bodies are always quite the opposite. You're almost always. Back in the 90s in Dublin, um, we live in a country that's, uh, you can differentiate people in terms of class by what you hear by the way that they speak, um, our accents are not just divided regionally, they're heavily divided along class lines. So I spent seven years listening to almost always middle and upper middle class men, um, very heavily weighted um, towards men who were uh, doctors, dentists, you know, men who, and, and I hear this all over the world all the time. Um, there was a slight shift in the Irish context, because we had the, um, the the Celtic Tiger, as it was known, come along in the mid nineties and change a lot about Ireland, including the demographics and prostitution. So when I got nearer the end of that seven years, you had more um, chippies and sparkies and, you know, like men who worked on building sites and um, electricians and plumbers and people like that. But that just goes to show you, Asoi, that this really is all about money because as soon as the working class men started to get some money, they started to get inventive in what ways they were going to spend it. But this was like, I know that if there had never been a Celtic tiger in this country, I would have been having exactly the same experience I had um, in 91 all the way through to 98 because it really is about privilege. Wow. And, and in your opinion, um, does it make sense to differentiate between men who pay for services from women ostensibly in prostitution by quote-unquote choice and women who are trafficked into prostitution? Well, first because of all, you often hear that separation saying that, oh, these ones chose, these ones didn't. Uh, the men don't give a damn for starters. 
Um, and where they do, oftentimes you'll find out that they get a sadistic thrill out of the idea that the woman is there against her will. And again, back to what Melissa was talking about, you only have to look at the comment sections in the in the online um, brothels, which is really what they are, they're d- digital brothels as far as I'm concerned. Mm. And if you, if you hear what the way that the men converse with each other and the things that they say, both in the chat sections and in the review sections, where they're reviewing women as if they were a meal they'd eaten the night before. Um, uh, you know, you, you can see all you need to know right there. The very often, and I think from what I've seen, I'd, I'd be interested to hear Melissa's take on this as a researcher, because I'm not mm. a researcher, but I have noticed for myself that the, the most common complaint that I've ever seen was the woman's unwillingness so that will tell you right there that the men just simply don't give a damn. So how does it make sense for us to differentiate when the men exactly. don't? You know? Exactly. I think the problem is uh, people these days, have, have you noticed, they seem to think they can make up their own dictionary and the meaning of words. They totally ignore <laughs> the common understanding in any language of, for example, the word choice. And and it it can get completely insane in my view. For example, let's talk about hunger and poverty and homelessness. If a woman is hungry or if her children are hungry, she does what she can to stay alive and to feed her kids. how is this choice? Uh, listen to what, it, this is an Italian sex buyer, by the way, who said mm. this uh, in some research by, I think the, the main editor was uh, someone named Di Nicola. It's fascinating. They did a whole book on European and several chapters on Italian sex buyers. So here's what mm. this one guy said. Well, all prostitutes are exploited he was a knowledgeable sex buyer. All prostitutes are exploited. However, they also have good incomes. So you see, he's using the fact that he is paying her in cash, sometimes in food. In the US, we have women who do uh, a blow job for a hamburger because they're hungry or they perform a sex act for a tank of gas because they need to get to a job to get money to pay the rent. So it can be food or cash, but how could anyone possibly call that a choice? A choice between hunger and prostitution? It it makes no sense. And people who act as if that makes sense they really don't have a knowledge about the conditions of the lives of women in prostitution in Dublin and San Francisco or in Rome. They don't have any idea what these women are going through. Here's, here's another guy. This is a Canadian sex buyer hmm. who was in Thailand, one of the traveling types. And there are many of those who go to someone else's country especially countries in the global South, South yeah. where women are uh, 
more vulnerable because of poverty, civil conflict, climate change, etc. So this guy was saying, a Canadian man who traveled to Bangkok to buy sex, he said, well, I'm helping her out. I'm putting food on her plate. As if he's some kind of humanitarian. And Rachel, I know, has one of the world's world's great uh, responses to that humanitarian attitude on the part of sex buyers. I don't even know if she can say it on a webinar, but if you can translate what you said, Rachel, it cuts through all the baloney, doesn't it? It was um, in response to um, Ken Roth from Human Rights Watch, and he'd made some absurd comment on Twitter. Um, I would have to paraphrase, I can't remember what he said exactly, but it was along the lines of the, the humanitarian. He was basically alluding to the idea of the humanitarian nature of what men were doing in exploiting women um, or, or a women's right to so be exploited. I can't remember his words exactly, but I was so incensed that I told him the humane thing to do, um, the, the humane thing to put in the mouth of a hungry woman was food and not your cock. Um, and it was probably <laughs> in, in the more genteel things that I have to say that I thought well, what <laughs> for, it, they were all just because that's been the most quoted thing I've ever typed anywhere. Is it? Oh. <laughs> yeah. And I think it was important to let him have it like that, to say to him like that, because otherwise he, it wouldn't get to him. No. They're just so blunt, they wouldn't understand. Well, it, it's so brilliant because it cuts through all this BS about yeah. choice. Yeah. That's not her choice. You yeah. know, that is not her choice. And, and um, that's what I like about it. Yeah. But just the fact that he was the head of Human Rights Watch in itself. That's, that was the that, that's heartbreaking. The obscenity of it, you know. Yeah. I feel like yeah. we're living in an age of obscenity. Uh, yeah that's really really heartbreaking to have that kind of person in that kind of very important and sensitive position i'm Mm. happy so um i just wanted to ask how can you tell us about the research on how men's attitudes towards women in general are correlated with sex buying i think that would be very important to to know yeah sure um just a bit about it, and and um, I guess uh, some one of the studies that I absolutely love was done by um, uh, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the researcher right now, but they mm. studied. This was a big public health survey, and they studied more than a thousand men in Chile, Croatia, India. Mexico and Rwanda, in each of those countries, they interviewed a thousand men about their many, many things, including their health. And because they had such huge numbers of interviewees, they were able to look at this. What's different about men who check a little box that says, yes, I've bought sex. I've bought a woman in prostitution. 
Does that make them different from thousands of other men? And here's what we found is so it's uh, here's what these researchers found is that the men who said they'd bought sex were more likely to rape a woman than men who had not bought sex. That's not just raping women in prostitution, which of course they do twice a week, three times a week, you name it. This is women who are not prostituting. So if a guy buys sex, he's more likely to rape other women in the society yeah. in which he lives. I, I think that's, uh, that's as important a finding as anything else, partly because yeah. it, I mean, Rachel, were you trying to say something about that? No, I was just kind oh. of thinking to myself that I knew that instinctively before I ever knew it via reading research. Yeah. Um, because it was, there was a kind of a, I'm not sure how to phrase this exactly. There was just an understanding. You could just sense it, that you weren't dealing for the most part with men from the general population. You were dealing with men who were prepared to treat women in ways that, you know, they, most of them were just not your average guy. Now, of course, yeah. there were some average guys in there, some of whom were too stupid to understand the full nature of what they were even involved in, um, which is probably not a very um, <clears throat> popular thing to say. But there were some men, they were certainly a minority, but there were some men that I just, I, I felt were um, just really very dumb um, now, I would imagine that the dumbness, that the, the, the difficulty they had in understanding what exactly the dynamics they were involved in and what their role within those dynamics was would have dissolved very quickly if they'd walked into a brothel and found their sister sitting in the bed. So maybe they weren't as bloody dumb as they made themselves out to be. Um, but there were mm -hmm. some men who gave you that impression, yeah. But for the mm. most part, yeah, no, you, you knew you were dealing with misogynists and they made that very clear to you. Mm. You know, another thing, um, another thing we found in research in many different countries, including US, UK, uh, India, Cambodia, England, Scotland, we found that across the board, and I don't think this comes as a surprise to anybody on the mm -hmm. panel or anybody listening. But if you compare sex buyers with men who choose, now there's the choice, the choice not yeah. to buy sex. If you compare sex buyers with men who choose not to buy sex, there's a difference in empathy. The sex buyers either deliberately or because they've got a different, slightly different psychological makeup that makes them more focused on their own needs and unwillingness to look at the situation and the life situation of the woman he's paying for. Um, they're significantly different in empathy. And um, they tell us this. They have told us this upfront in interviews. One man in London said, I don't want to know about her. I don't want her to cry or this and that because that spoils the idea for me. In other words, um, 
he doesn't care if there's a pimp standing down the block or outside the room of the brothel in Soho. He doesn't care whether she has bruises or a look of terror in her eye. No, no, no. He cares about one thing, which is getting off sexually. And his money justifies that abuse. Um, I think... I think we really need to understand that these men are not naive. They are not ignorant. They see what is going on in systems of prostitution. Uh, a German man, this is number eight, Ruby, mm. a German man said, no one does it voluntarily. If you want to understand this choice issue, ask the sex buyers. Here's what this German guy said, and he's talking about legal prostitution, by the way. No where, where one the does... state is part. Say what? Where the, where the state, where the state has become the pin. Yes. Yeah. Collecting tax money from organized crime like the Hells Angels. In yeah. Frankfurt, the tax money is collected by organized criminals and passed over to the city fathers. If you can believe that level of corrupt complicity between organized crime and uh, city officials. But what this one guy said, I, I just wanted to be sure I let you know what they said. This guy yeah. says in Germany, well, no one does it voluntarily. And he even know who knew who was the most vulnerable in Germany. He went on to say the Romanians and Asians are 100% tricked or deceived. Now he's buying these women who are from Romania or who are uh, Thai or, or uh, Korean or Chinese. He's buying these women in a legal broth, state-sponsored state brothel, but he still knows. He knows they've been deceived, tricked, trafficked, coerced. Um, these men know a whole lot about trafficking and violence and abuse, even though uh, sometimes they pretend they don't. They just don't care. And, and it, it, it's like, for many of them, I think it's that, that thing of dehumanizing the person for them to pretend they don't know to do all of the horrors that they do. So I think to that extent is really deliberate. It's a very deliberate act, I think, because they are the ones, as you rightly said, who actually make the choice whether or not to buy. So the, there was, we received um, a YouTube comment on our video of um, survivor activist Rosen Hitcher about the role of the survival movement in passing the French law which says she, quote, should track down all her former customers and return their money if she thinks that purchasing sex is wrong. They provided the funds to support her and her children. Now she's bitching about it and saying they should be prosecuted, hmm? unquote. Now, we do not know whether this comment is from a buyer, but it seems representative of the views we often hear. So, what would be your response to this kind of comment? So they're saying, well, she got paid, so shut up. Is that yeah. kind of it? Okay. Yeah. Well, I must say, um, 
I'll, again, I'm going to quote what I've learned from Rachel about the role of money in all of this. It's incredibly, mm. incredibly important what that payment of cash does. Let's start out with the understanding that prostitution is unwanted sex on the part of the woman. She wants the money and he wants the sex. The money that he pays her does several things. One, it coerces her to perform a sex act that she wouldn't otherwise do unless she needed the money for survival. Two, the sex buyer's money hides his violence. It covers it up, like we heard from the guy from uh, the Canadian sex buyer in Thailand. And it, it kind of decreases his guilt about his responsibility for the abuse he's perpetrating on another woman, the paid rape, if you will, that he's, yeah. he's uh, uh, perpetrating on her. And thirdly, and, and this is something that um, any survivor, I think, can talk about better than I, but I've come to understand it, is that accepting that money shifts the blame onto her. That's how he says, you made a choice. See, you took the, my money. It's your choice. No, it's not. But the psychological destructive process that that money shoves on her is she ends up feeling herself that it was her choice. He convinces her of that. All of these uh, self-congratulatory sex buyers who run around saying, well, I'm helping her out. I'm paying her money. See, now she can pay her rent. She internalizes that and she can even end up hating herself or blaming herself for that. So Rachel, what have I not explained Rachel. about that? Because you, you laid that out so clearly for me. Thank you, Melissa. Um, yeah, I think the ultimate thing is that it confers culpability. I think that that was the, the phrase that I wrapped that one up with. That's what it does. And you can see in the cruelty of those comments directed towards Rosen, how the absolute intention is to confer culpability. That's what the money is supposed to do. Yeah. I mean, it's supposed to keep you quiet when you're in the room and it's supposed to keep your mouth shut uh, years and decades later as, um, as this man, uh, no doubt a punter himself, has so clearly demonstrated. I, I, I remember someone I know saying this when we were discussing these issues and it came out that this person is actually a sex buyer. And that was exactly the kind of excuse he tried to use saying, oh, but I'm paying her. And without that, she wouldn't have money to feed herself or her children. He really didn't feel any shame, which he should have. And I hope someday he gets to realize the kind of horrible person he is in doing that and in thinking that way. And I think it's so important to let people know more of this because generally society tends to follow that line of thought and not realize all of the abuse that's behind it. It's so important to continue to say this and to reinforce it to make them understand that the guilt is on them. 
and they are the ones who should be ashamed of themselves. Well, guilt, guilt, but also, as Rachel says, culpability, responsibility, yes. accountability. And that's where the Nordic model comes in, of course, yes. the, a law that actually holds sex buyers accountable. I guess what I would also say about in response, uh, in defense of Rosen Hitcher, who is an, a phenomenal activist in France, I would say, you know, if we recognize that domestic violence has a perpetrator and a victim, exactly. we punish the batterer. Yes. If we recognize that rape has a perpetrator and a victim, we punish the rapist. Yes. And if we recognize, and we now do, if we recognize that prostitution has a perpetrator and a victim, we punish the sex buyer. It's yes. only logical. Yes. You know, they try to get us so distracted with these arguments that I think sometimes our allies just don't think logically. They just accept this mantra yes. um, of sex, of prostitution as work or, and they, and they don't think for five minutes, is this work I want my kids to grow up and do, my sisters, you know, it's just- exactly. Just those trafficking people, they drive me nuts. You know the people I'm talking about who pull in millions and tens of millions and talk nonsense all day about trafficking, 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 and they never use the word prostitution. And yeah. they don't give a damn about a woman unless she's chained to a radiator somewhere. And they have a tunnel vision and no idea about the real drivers, the things that make women vulnerable in this world. And nor do they care, I don't believe. I really don't, unless it suits their, um, their sex trafficking agenda, which to me is all about politics. It's all about funding. Yeah. It's, it's, it, there's, there's not a, a spark of feminism within that analysis. It's not even an analysis. Yeah. It's, uh, it's uh, a hustle is what it, it is. It is a hustle. It's totally about business and money. When you take, for example, the women that Iroko is serving, some of them from Edo State in Nigeria, uh, who are trafficked to Italy and all over Europe, to call those women migrant sex workers, that's an obscenity. That is truly it's obscene an obscenity. in the extreme, yes. It is, it is erasing their entire existence and their vulnerability. And by the way, their resistance. They may have a smile plastered on their face because they're going to get beaten up and terrorized yeah. if they don't. But we have to look past that little smile and past yes. the lies of the sex work advocates and really see what we're dealing with here, which is a extremely organized criminal complicity between Nigerian and Italian organized crime. It's as simple as that for the yeah. purpose of generating huge amounts of money. Of money, yeah, billions every year. And, and the situation was that um, paying for prostitution is harmless. Yeah, is it ever harmless? No. Yeah, it can't be harmless. It's not possible for it to be harmless. Exactly. It's harmless. And I think yeah. they are just so cynical, you know. 
In recent days, we've had speakers repeatedly accuse proponents of criminalization, of paying for prostitution, of being so-called carceral feminists. And that is that we just want to lock everyone up. There seems to be the idea that we focus our attention exclusively on the demand, the buyers, and that we are somehow ignoring and turning attention away from the systemic problems, the social inequalities and injustices that causes the vulnerabilities that so often precede trafficking and prostitution. So what do you think of, you know, of this? <laughs> uh, Rachel, help me out here, but I'll start out. I'll tell you, you know what's carceral, which means the body. What's carceral is prostitution. That's carceral imprisonment of a woman's body. That's mm. psychic imprisonment of her ability to respect herself and love herself and exist like non-prostituted women. That's about as carceral as you could get. I mean, it, it's so insane. It stopped, here's what it does, that kind of remark does. It almost stops my brain from working. It's so, <laughs> It's so off the rails. It's I like how oh, I can relate to that so much. It's like as if as if your head was like the inside of a clock and you have all these different wheels that feed yeah. into each other <laughs> in the middle and they just yes. that's how that's the mental image I can. <laughs> oh, I can relate to that entirely. Um, you know, I, I guess my my answer, I'll give you a short answer. Sorry, <clears throat> just nonsense. It's utter nonsense. I have never yeah. met an abolitionist woman, whether or not she'd been in the sex trade, who didn't discuss the, um, the vulnerabilities, the social inequalities, the, uh, the, 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 uh, all of the different various forms of, of marginalization and prior histories of, of, of poverty, of, of abuse in the home, of sexual violence. I mean, yeah. we have discussed everything everywhere. And it's simply a lie, but it's one lie among many. Yeah. I think it comes from postmodernism, Asoe, postmodern mm. academics who think that things only exist in the mind and that nothing exists in real world. Sexism isn't real for them. Racism <laughs> is not real. It's all in your mind. In your mind. And, and it, it's so crazy but they use these fancy sounding words that make people think they know something. You know, if you use a five syllable word <laughs> and you're an academic, maybe you're going to get people applauding for yeah. how smart you are. But we just have to stay focused on the perspective of the woman in prostitution. And that clears it all up for me. Let's yeah. just think yeah. about it from her point of view. Uh, and indeed, uh, our work as abolitionists starts from our deep knowledge of the kind of social injustices that women suffer that lead them to fall victims of these kinds of prostitution industries. And, and so it just doesn't make sense when they say that. And in fact, I was really going to ask both of you about pro-prostitution academics. If you can expand on that, what do you think of them? Those who come out that, oh, well, it's a job like any other. And, you know, they are writing tons of books and articles on how fantastic it is. But of course, 
when it comes to the personal, they don't want you to say if they will allow their children or themselves even to be in, in the industry. So what do you think of them? Um, you know, I, I've had this conversation numerous times. Um, I despise them by a very large margin um, beyond anybody else. <laughs> um, I mean, more than any pro-lobby mouthpiece you can think of, whether it's, you know, a woman who's involved in the Sex Workers Alliance and she's up there making a fool out of herself, snorting coke all the time and talking nonsense in this extremely selfish self-regarding yeah. um, um, way that I've seen a lot of that in the Western world. I really have. Um, and, you know, and of course you're angry with those women and of course what they, what they say bothers you. But I don't have any hate in my heart, not a spark of it for those women because I feel, I feel sad for them. That ultimately, at the, at the end of it all, I feel sad for them. Um, yes. You know, I know they, they have a, a longer road to come back from than I did. That much I do know because I was never so far gone that I would get up with a mic in my face and a TV camera on me talking that kind of nonsense in the full public view, no chance. So I feel sorry for them. I know I'm going a little bit off track now. Um, the pimps, um, no, I, I can't bring myself to hate the pimps as much as the academics, because at least the pimps you understand, they're in it for the money, it's straight up exploitation. They're all about the dollar. If you shut down the sex trade tomorrow, they'll be off selling firearms or narcotics. It's just about the bottom line for them. Um, but the academics are a different breed. They're a different breed. And this is why I have got this. I just despise them because they are removed in every conceivable way from this issue. They're removed physically. They're removed emotionally. They're remo removed uh, mentally, spiritually. There isn't a way you can imagine that they are connected to this issue. And yet they feed off it like vultures. They're just vultures picking off the bones of brutalized women, impoverished women, women who have lived the absolute polar opposite of all of their, their, their different elements of their own privileged existence. And that to me is worse than any pimp on this earth. Wow. I think I'm going to put that. These vultures, <laughs> these academic vultures, I think I'm going to keep that quote. Thank you for that. I mean, one of the things, what I, I would say about that, Asoe, if I may, is that yeah. um, I think we live in a fact-free world sometimes. People mm -hmm. don't pay attention to the facts that are right yeah. in front of their in front nose. Of them. And, and I would encourage people to trust their instincts, to trust their intuition, and don't, please don't think that it's a good thing to act woke or cool or hip about this issue of prostitution. There is nothing, you know, that's one of the big lies that I confronted and that actually silenced me as a new activist when I got involved in this work people would say, you don't know what you're talking about, Melissa. You haven't been there. You aren't a sex worker. And I always thought to myself, but wait, 
I know what it's like. I can imagine what it's like to be homeless or to be on the streets or to have to do something you don't want to do in order to survive. All of us have had that experience. All of us have had the experience, or most of us in the world, women, of being humiliated or even being sexually humiliated. If you can understand that, what I would say to our allies is you can understand prostitution if you understand that experience. So don't listen to this baloney about it's, it's work, it's migrant workers or any of this. Just And the one other thing I'd say about sex workers versus exited survivors is they're two different groups of human beings and yeah. they have very different perspectives. And I don't think anyone should lump them together because it's a big political mistake. Yeah. And as we speak, it's going on in Canada right now. The parliament is acting as if they've heard from survivors because a bunch of sex work advocates have shoved their way to the front of the room. And sometimes it's a little harder to reach out to women who are yeah. exited survivors because they want to put that part of their life behind them. And behind them, yeah. Well, we do have to listen to those women because they're the ones that are not under any kind of pimp control. Yeah. And you know, like a hand, Melissa, as well, of course, mm. you know. That's What's not that again, Rachel? I said, you know, that nonsense going on over there is sleight of hand, you know. This yes. Is, this is not... Uh, accidental. Yeah, that was actually one of the questions I was going to ask about distinguishing between the voices of women who've exited and those who are still in prostitution. When you have these so-called academics bringing these uh, people still in prostitution and putting them in front and saying that they are the voices of survivors, which they are not mm. actually, yeah. I remember making the point in Paid For that this was about the difference between perspective and proximity. You know, yeah. what it really is, is about um, looking at, at a group of women who, who, in essence, really are the same group of women. But as Catherine McKinnon put it, they're the same group of women at two different points in time. You know, so like if the Turn Off the Red Light campaign had have kicked off in Dublin when I was... Um, back in my teens, early 20s, um, you know, I would have had a whole range of feelings. And I would say a lot of those feelings would have been in conflict, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. When, when we get into this argument and this debate with pro-sex work activists versus exited survivors, one of the things I would say to break out of that is, is the topic we're talking about today. They never ever quote sex buyers. They don't want, mm. except to say, oh, they're so nice, which is a lie. <laughs> they never quote sex buyers. And I think one of the strategies I would encourage people to use is to start dropping these very direct quotes from sex buyers in the middle of those conversations because they can't yeah. argue with that. They really yeah. can't argue with that. I, I, I put the, the website of prostitution research and education up on the chat, 
we have a number of reports with lengthy lists of juicy, I use that sarcastically, quotes from these guys that you're welcome to pick and choose from if you wanna drop them into these debates. I've found it can be very helpful. Great, great. So we, 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 we have a few questions. We have about less than um, half an hour. We have um, three questions on the Q&A, but before we go to that, I just want to ask a question that we normally ask to all of our panelists. And, um, and that is, what do you find to be the best way to debunk the widespread notion of prostitution as sex work, quote and unquote? I guess one thing I would say is I don't think there's one way. I think there are many, many ways. Many ways. And all of us as abolitionists, as allies, as survivors, we have different skills and we have different expertise. And, and um, whatever you think your strongest point is, that's what we should use. I, it, it's kind of like like climate change, there isn't one solution to it, there are many. And I think the same is true of the sex trade. We can sue uh, pimps and pornographers who are the same people oftentimes. Yeah. We can sue them and we can hit them in the, in the bank account, which is a very good place to, to hit these people. Very good, that's where- One of the best. It hurts them the most, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we it can does. do that. We can do that. We can educate people. We can uh, never, ever fail to include survivors on boards of directors of organizations and policymaking organizations. Uh, at least I'll speak for the U.S. Oftentimes there's this mm. attitude towards survivors that they are to be uh, and this makes us very vulnerable to the sex work arguments. There's this argument aimed at shelters and exiting agencies that, um, well, sir, you're treating survivors like victims. And, and I think we need to get away from that and explain to people that it's possible that, that human beings are both victimized and have strengths at the same yeah. time or they wouldn't yeah. be alive. So we, there, there's so many arguments. We've, the Swedish women's lobby has a number of fabulous arguments. We put their whole pamphlet up on our website um, under frequently asked questions. And I know, I would imagine Space International has resources for responding yeah. to that. We do on our website. Um, I don't know. Let me stop here and see if Rachel, you have a better uh, answer to that. Yeah, I think that the isn't isn't the title of this um, webinar the role of the sex buyer? Is that right, Zoe? Yeah, that's right. That's correct. Right. I noticed that I was I read that before we came on, and I was thinking, um, you know, and and it reminded me when when I'd seen the materials a few weeks ago, what had popped into my head was. Um, we're really never going to be able to define the role of the, um, I, I, I don't want to use the term um, sex buyer for starters. That's the term I want to move away from, but I'll come back and explain why in a minute. 
maybe in response to one of the later questions. Um, but we're not going to define the role of the perpetrator in prostitution until we've defined the role of prostitution itself. I think what we're doing is putting the cart before the horse here in much the same way that we would never be able to define the role of the slave master on the plantation before we define slavery as an oppressive system. We're doing things back to front, I think. And I don't just mean on this uh, webinar, I mean in this conversation throughout all of history, right up to this present moment as I speak, because we've not yet defined prostitution as exploitative in and of itself, now, some of us have, of course, and some nations have too, thank God. But I mean the whole round green earth here. Because we've not yet done that collectively, we're going to have a much harder time defining the role of the perpetrator involved. Thank you so much for that. It provides a lot of food for thought and a lot of um, stuff on which we still need to work, even as we are abolitionists and to help others also to get to that point. Yeah, yeah. long way to go, but uh, we're heading in the right direction. Yeah, <laughs> happily. There are three questions. I think the first one is from Sigma, Sigma Huda, the former UN um, SRT for those who are listening. Yes. And um, she says, uh, hello everyone, this is Sigma Huda. Nice to see you three powerful women. Would appreciate if you could differentiate the very popular term sex work and prostitution, and again, sex worker and prostitute, or woman in prostitution. If Melissa could address this, it would be most appreciated. The difference between sex work and prostitution. Uh, mm. I mean, hello, Sigma Huda. I'm honored that you're on this call and thrilled. I constantly quote what she wrote when she was at the UN, which is that most of the time on the ground, legal prostitution meets all of the international definitions of what trafficking is. That was such an eye-opening and crucial comment about the nature of prostitution, which is that you, you really can't tell the difference between prostitution and trafficking most of the time. For me, let me first say, I, I, don't, I don't think anything called sex work exists. I think there's a tiny, tiny percentage of mostly privileged women in mostly <clears throat> the global North who, for example, may have been deceived about the nature of prostitution and calling it sugar daddy uh, or a dating website or mm -hmm. something like that. They are also deceived into thinking that this is a jo job that they can engage in for a few months and make their five years of college tuition payments. And they can make get rich in five months. That's, that's a lie. And this tiny minority of women, let's say less than 5% of everybody in the world who's in prostitution, 5% or less, this tiny minority has privilege that most women do not. Most, most of all, there's class 
privilege. They have backup options. After the first gang rape on their dating sugar daddy uh, outings, after the first gang rape, they can turn to a relative or a neighbor and say, I'm coming over to your place. I can't pay my rent anymore, but I'm out of here. I'm not doing this anymore. 95% of women in prostitution do not have that kind of choice to pay for their education, to pay for their rent, to pay for their food. So there's class privilege among that group who say they're choosing prostitution. And even they are hurt as privileged by class and race as they are. They get hurt too. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is we did a survey of frontline agencies and government reports, as many as we could find. And what we discovered is 84% of every adult in prostitution is under third party control, pimped or hungry. It's as simple as that. It's not a choice. Almost everybody is being controlled. So I just think we have to throw that kind of information at people rather than arguing the dictionary about whether about sex work. It just, again, it just makes no sense. I don't know if Rachel wanted to say something to that too. Um, I just to expand on it briefly a little bit, sorry, to say that mm. we look at the terminology um, of the, the, the woman as an individual, you know, whether you refer to her as a sex worker or a prostitute. One of the conversations that I regularly find myself button heads with is with people who want to choose between the two. Um, mm. I would choose neither. Uh, um, I wouldn't dream of using either um, because prostitute gives the idea that this is the essence of the woman this is what she is you know um and and sex worker of course normalizes and sanitizes the situation she finds herself in so i would reject both there's no choice to be made between them and i'd refer to her as a prostituted woman because that brings the perpetrator into the pic we need to continually do here and the, the other question now before we is, is uh, um, oh, okay, it was just a request from Lisa to post the excellent quote you read from Rachel with the, with the three ways that money coerces. Mm. And uh, yes, Sigma was with us, so she, she had all, all of it. Um, so I, I don't know if you want to speak to that, Melissa, about the three ways that money coerces or also um, Rachel, since it was a quote from you directly. Oh, I'll let Melissa read that out if she has a verbatim. Oh, okay. Do you have that, Melissa? Also, also Rachel and I, uh, wrote an article that has been published that has mm. some of those arguments about mm. culpability and the role of money in coercing uh, a concept of who's responsible, who's accountable, who's to blame, whose choice is it, whose choice isn't it. 
And that, that article is, it's called Consent, Coercion, and Culpability. Uh, I think it's up both on the Space mm. International website and on the okay. Prosecution Research and Education website. So that's one source. I mean, just briefly, the money, his cash is what the mode of coercion is. His cash is what effectively rem, rem, makes the concept of consent irrelevant. His cash is the coercion mm. because she needs the cash to pay for essentials like food and rent. Yeah. So the money is the coercion. Money coerces her to perform prostitution. And secondly, the money hides his violence as you've heard in, in the quotes from some of these sex buyers today. And third, and these are equally important from my point of view, the money that he pays to buy a person for sex, that shifts the blame onto her because he can then say, she made the choice to accept the money, which is of course not really a choice, but he ends up blaming her and then she even ends up blaming herself. Well, I took the money and, and it explains this is the only thing that to me has ever explained prostituted women's relationship to money sometimes while they're in the sex trade. It's mm -hmm. like they hate the money. The money oh, itself is yeah, filthy. It's true. It is. It is. I'd never met a woman who had a healthy relationship with money yep. while she was in the sex trade. And yes. many of us, myself included, still struggle with our relationships to money to this day. Like if I'm in a in a, a store anywhere and I've, I, let's say I have a hundred dollars and I've spent eighty five and I have fifteen left, I will I will, without even realizing I'm doing it, I'm looking around and I'm wondering what else to spend that fifteen dollars on. The money is born in a hole in my pocket. I have to get rid of it. And I've struggled with that problem all my life. I've never resolved it, but at least I'm aware of it now and I know where it, where it comes from, you know? Um, but it's, it's an actual aversion to money because it, and we can get deeper and deeper into the psychology of this. I think you could, you could think and write for the rest of your life about what it is that that money really does because it has a multitude of functions. And the more I think about it, the more deeper it gets. It's not, it does not begin and end with his, his right to buy his way inside her body that's the basic thing but there's all sorts of spin-offs of that he buys her silence by which I mean he buys away her right to authenticate the reality of her experience he also buys the veil that's placed over the eyes of the general public because the, the money um, it, it, it buys away their ability to see what he's done here precisely because of the culpability that it confers upon her. So I think, you know, money is a very deadly thing, really, depending how we use it, because there's a whole lot of spin-off effects here going on all at the same time, and all of them negative and harmful. That's so, it's a huge eye-opener, because you really don't think of that relationship of money there, you don't think of it in those terms. And it's so important to let people understand that. 
It's really important to not to let them get away with that. Sorry, you were going to say something, Lisa. No, just to agree with both of you that um, it's an under-addressed issue. It's not yeah. written enough. Someone should yes. do some work on this uh, yes. and write about it at great length because most of us and many, and I include survivors too, don't understand the extreme contradictions yes. in this. It, on the one hand, it's essential. And it, it just leads me to make one point I wanna make. Yes. Uh, in addition to how important it is to look deeper into the relationship of women in the sex trade to money and how, how destructive it can be, which is an arm of the whole sex trade itself. Mm. If we had a basic, uh, basic healthcare, basic food, basic shelter, uh, provided to all citizens in all countries, we probably wouldn't be having this discussion about money and, and the struggle around it. Um, in most of our countries, children are hungry often. Um, adult women don't have homes to stay in when it's cold. Yeah. Yeah. If, if that was supplied, it would, it would change the whole discussion we would be having, wouldn't it? It would considerably. And I and also believe that we wouldn't also have the question of prostitution. Yeah. Because you find that when women are okay, it's it's difficult to find them falling into this trap. It's difficult to find it being easier for exploiters to exploit them when they are strong. So I believe that would, you know, it would change the dynamics considerably, I think. It yeah. would. Wow, it's been a fantastic evening. And I think there are lots and lots and lots, I'm sure you would still want to tell us. And we are so hungry for more to know more, but unhappily time is, you know, it's not finite for our, purposes so we will need to be closing up soon but I think in, in in a few minutes in about a couple of minutes I don't know if there's anything else both of you want to share with our listeners before we say goodbye to them I'd just like to say that presumably the majority of your listeners will be Italian um, next to Ireland <coughs> excuse me um Italy is my favorite country in the world. I just adore Italy and Italians. And of course, it's the Italians who make Italy what it is. Um, I passionately hope that Italians will, will fight for the integrity of their nation and the health and well-being of their women, be they native or migrant, and not allow your country to be turned into the kind of cesspit that I've had the misfortune to witness in Germany and Holland and New Zealand and elsewhere, because it is a terrible stain on a nation. And it's about the last thing I would want for Italy and its people. Thank you very, very much for that powerful message, Rachel. I hope everybody listening understands and will join our fight to ensure that things change in Italy. 
in the right direction, of course. Melissa? I, I, would, I would say that most men don't do not buy sex. Most men make the choice not to buy sex. And I hope that Italian men, Italian politicians point that out, that they're making that choice deliberately not to ever buy sex. And why, why are they making that choice? I hope men in Italy, men every place start opening up and being, uh, being more vocal about if they choose not to buy sex, why is that? Tell, tell us about that. Tell other men about that. That, that will require them to make a, a statement about how they understand the abuse and the harmfulness of the nature of prostitution per se, as Rachel was saying. Wow, thank you. 